thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who will buy Twitter if Elon doesn't, <laughs> Mike Vandebogart. Uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you once again to everybody who's tuned into Locations Unknown, either over the audio waves or on YouTube. Uh, just a couple of quick uh, announcements. We're going to go through our uh, new Patreon supporters. So thank you to Dakota Gearhart, Sophia Ackerman, and Hannah Madden. Thank you so much for uh, supporting us through Patreon. Uh, Joe and I are actually recording a fun supporter-only episode right after this where we're going to go through about 10 months of uh, voicemails. So Ooh, we always talk about the voicemails. Well, yep. if you want to hear them, you want to hear them, be a Patreon supporter. $1 a month. I said it on our Patreon uh, episode last time. You know, you could probably find that in the couch cushions in your living room. So $1. Um also, if you uh, get a chance to, Joe was on a, what was the podcast you were on recently? It's called the Possible Project Podcast. Yeah, so Joe uh, had a, a really cool interview with the creator of that podcast uh, talking about uh, his uh, entrepreneurial endeavors and then uh, talking about his experience in the wilderness and then the podcast. So if you're curious to listen to that, uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and I... If you want to get on a future voicemail episode, you can always call our number. It's 208-391-6913 and leave a voicemail. That's also if you have feedback, yeah. uh, crazy feedback, compliments. Uh, if you hated something and just feel the need to just take it out on us, yes. call that number, leave a message. We will listen to it and respond to it on Patreon episodes. Yeah, so just keep in mind, if you do leave a voicemail, we'll end it's really crazy we're definitely going to play oh that. yeah we're gonna play <laughs> so don't say anything uh, you don't want played publicly um and just to wrap it up i forgot last episode to thank two uh listeners who suggested the michael lemater uh case so sarah rotman suggested this back in september of 2020 actually and then michelle foley actually recommended the episode again or the case again to us in february so thank you to both of you for so see, we we listen. Yeah. Sometimes it might take a couple of years, but we have a list <laughs> yeah. and we have people's names, so we we do pay attention. Yes, and we've got a lot of uh, future case episodes coming up from case suggestions from listeners just like you. So that's all I had, Joe. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. September 28, 1985, 36-year-old California resident and outdoorsman left for Alaska on a multi-week remote camping trip in Glacier Bay National Park. He planned to spend two weeks alone in the remote wilderness 
only moving from his site for occasional day hikes. Near the end of his planned stay, park officials went to check on him, only to find he had vanished. Join us this week as we investigate the strange disappearance of Kevin O'Keefe. So, uh, Joe, Glacier Bay National Park is probably in my top five of parks I'd like to visit that I haven't been to yet. It looks really cool. There's a lot of different ecosystems in the park. Um, it's a tough place to get to. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit here in the location Yeah, this, is, this would be a major prep yeah. for us to go to. This wouldn't be like, hey, let's go hiking in Glacier Bay. It's No, we need to do some research, some work, all, all the fun things. Yeah, so... I. Uh, Glacier uh, Bay National Park and Preserve lies west of Juneau, Alaska, and can only be reached by plane or boat, so you cannot drive there uh, from the lower 48 or even from Anchorage. Uh, the only road in the area that, uh, you know, it, it's just there to connect the small town of Gustavus and its airfield to the park headquarters at Bartlett Cove. Uh, the park was established December 2nd, 1980, they get about 597,000 visitors a year per 2018. And to put this in perspective, the population of Alaska, which we brought this up last time, but we didn't know the exact number, is actually 731,000 people. So uh, not a lot of people visit the park, but compared to how many live in Alaska, that, that's a pretty big number. Um, like I said, there are no roads that lead to the park, um, and it's most easily reached by air travel. But uh, during summer months, there are ferries to uh, the small community of Gustavus that are, or directly to the uh, marina in Bartlett Cove. And uh, another frequent way people get to this park during the summer is through cruise ships. So um, I've always, I always thought it'd be kind of fun to do like an Alaska cruise. Um, but the number of cruise ships they let in is regulated. So they probably don't want to wreck the local ecosystem with like hundreds of massive ships coming and going every day. Um, this area does have some very long human history to it. So the earliest traces of human occupation at Glacier Bay date back to about 10,000 years ago. Um, one of the issues, which I found this really interesting because usually you don't hear about glacial activity in human timeframes, but, um, one of the reasons why they think human activity or evidence of human activity is so scarce now is because, much of the area that was populated by kind of prehistoric humans uh, has been removed by glaciers. So um, it kind of basically scrubbed and scoured the ground of every, any evidence of uh, human activity in the region. So kind of cool. Sounds like uh, maybe the guy who's studying it like forgot to do his report. And he's like, ah, it was all taken away by glaciers. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, so one of the first Europeans to explore was a French guy, uh, he uh, explored uh, the Alaskan coast on foot in the region of Glacier Bay in 1786. Um, Russian fur traders are also pro uh, also probably visited the region in the mid-18th century. The region was later visited by George Vancouver in Discovery in 1794 during the Vancouver Expedition. And one of our uh, favorite characters in history, John Muir, visited Glacier Bay in uh, 1879, just prior to the 1880 establishment of Yosemite 
National Park. Which he went was, to every national park yeah. prior to them being national parks. That's yeah. how awesome he is. And uh, he his his life's work really was getting Yosemite established as a national park. But it was said that Glacier Bay was like his second favorite park. So pretty cool. Uh, Glacier Bay spans over 5,000 miles and it has some wild elevation changes from zero feet at the Pacific Ocean all the way up to 15,266 feet at Mount Fairweather, uh, one of the tallest mountains in the United States, by the way. Um, and it also marks the border between Alaska and Canada. Uh, another cool little factoid about the park, there's over 1,000 glaciers inside the park, which is pretty cool. And uh, archaeologists have confirmed that the lower section of Glacier Bay was habitable until about 300 years ago when a glacier forced all of the local inhabitants to flee the area. So, uh, so it was just growing and encroaching in on their living area. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. You don't hear that a lot. Um, Glacier Bay is actually one of the United Nations World Heritage Sites, which is kind of cool. Um, it's one of the largest parks internationally protected. Uh, sorry, it's uh, Glacier Bay National Park is part of uh, the largest internationally protected biosphere reserves in the world and is recognized by the United Nations. Kind of cool. Uh, like we said, John Muir is credited with discovering the park. Um, this is interesting. I had I didn't know these even existed, but uh, the park actually helps represent peace between nations. So in 1932, Glacier Bay National Park uh, became part of the world's first international peace park meant to celebrate peaceful relations between the United States and Canada. Known as the Waterton Glacier International Peace Park, the international designation joined Glacier with... Waterton Lakes National Park in Alberta, Canada. Because of this designation, the two parks are able to collaborate uh, in their policies for conservation, fire management, and research. That's cool. They kind of do the same thing with uh, uh, Montana. Glacier. Glacier National yeah. Park. I keep thinking it's not that because this is Glacier <laughs> Bay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, getting into a little bit of climate here, uh, our friends at the Copen Climate Classification System uh, – state that there are six climate zones within Glacier Bay National Park. So you've got uh, subarctic with cool summers and year-round rainfall, subpolar oceanic, temperate oceanic, humid continental mild summer wet all year, (laughs) humid continental dry cool summer, and warm summer Mediterranean. So a very wide range of weather you can experience in this park depending on elevation and when you go. Uh, record high in the park is 82 degrees Fahrenheit in June. Now, we always say, like, temperatures and stuff, so I put some comparisons in here with Wisconsin just to kind of show that the weather and temperature in this park are actually pretty temperate and mild compared to, like, even where we live. So the record high in Wisconsin it was 114 degrees Fahrenheit from 1936. Jeez. Uh, the record low in Glacier Bay is minus 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, in Wisconsin, it was minus 55 in 1996. I was going to say, the record low is only minus 11? Yeah. I so, feel like we just had that. Yeah, right? So that's like a f- January in Wisconsin. Well, yeah, negative 55 degrees in the 96. So yeah. I remember. I, like, remember that. It was cold. Well, we had negative, like, 40 and 50 with wind chill. Yeah. A couple of years, like, two or three years ago. I just remember everyone's pipes were freezing. Yeah. So, obviously, the hottest months uh, in the park are May through August. Coldest months are October through March. Snowfalls range around 28 inches in January to uh, they actually don't have any average snowfall from May to September. So, kind of interesting. 
And they do experience 211 days of precipitation, so kind of a rainy park. We're, uh, like, totally prepared to go Yeah, right. weather-wise. Like, yeah. It, we won't be shocked by the weather. No, I feel like the weather in Mount Rainier was worse. Yeah, it's going to be the ruggedness that we'll have to get used to. In the Yeah, so uh, obviously Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve occupies the northernmost section of the southeastern Alaska coastline between the Gulf of Alaska and Canada. So if you're not watching us on YouTube, it's kind of that little sliver that comes down south uh, of Alaska if you're looking at the whole state. It's like the leg. Yeah. <laughs> that goes along British Columbia. Yeah. Um, so it, it's uh, it's pretty southern part of Alaska. Uh, some in, probably in Canada would say it should be part of Canada. <laughs> hey, we bought it fair and square. Yeah, right. For pennies on the dollar. Um, so some of there's a ton of mountains in this park. So some of the major peaks are Mount Fairweather at 15,325 feet. Which Mount- actually has quite... Bad weather. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible dad joke. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Took me a bit. It's been a long day. It's because you're smart. Uh, <laughs> you have to stoop down at very dumb levels <laughs> to get my joke. Uh, we got Mount Carillion topping out at 12,726 feet. Mount Salisbury at 12,169 feet. And Mount Wilbur at 10,820 feet. In all, there are over 150 named mountain peaks in the park that are over 8,000 feet. It's actually where the first Salisbury steak was consumed by John Muir. <laughs> that is a lie. That is a... <laughs> that is uh, not a factual fact. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the train, this is the cool part about this park, is the train is so varied uh, depending on where you are. So you've got rugged mountain ranges that kind of intermingle with the Pacific in a maze of ice-scoured uh, fjords, valleys, beaches, straits, and islands. Um, so, And this is another cool part. The With anywhere in the park, uh, no point of land or sea is more than 30 miles from shore. So that's a, a pretty cool little fact. Yeah, it almost looks like, again, for those watching the video, it looks like almost like it's very vascular, like blood vessels from far away, yeah. and it's just all waterways and inlets and things. It's really cool. It looks it looks really cool. Someday I'll get there. Yep. Um, animals in the park. So uh, we got over three hundred species of plants that uh, you know call this park its home. Um, they have five major land ecosystems in this park: so wet tundra, coastal forest, alpine tundra, glaciers, and meadows. Um, in the waters around the park, you've got humpback whales, orcas, stellar sea lions, uh, harbor seals, sea otters, porpoises. Uh, there's large brown and black bear populations. Now, this, Joe, is actually really cool, and I never heard of this before. Is the, it a bear fact? Yes. And, and we verified it? I verified okay. it. <laughs> the rare blue glacier bear lives in uh, Glacier Bay National Park. So it's a color phase black bear, sometimes referred to as the blue bear. It is a subspecies of the American black bear with a silver, blue, or gray hair. Uh Oh, cool. Like almost like when you see an oil slick and it gets yeah. like a little colorful. Yeah. I Is that what up, the hair does? Yeah. I searched for them and they're, they, yeah, they look kind of, uh, kind of blue and they're big. So if they're standing on their hind legs, they're over 11 it's, feet. It's tall. called a, what a blue. It's called, um, a rare blue glacier bear. So for those listening, Joe is, uh, pulling up yeah, a picture. I'm, I'm looking up images. Yeah. Right they're, now. They're, that top right, corner. One. On, I'm going to make sure this is live over here. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're, they're really cool looking. 
And the next picture, they actually kind of like look blue. Um, so they're very unique and rare to this area, and I just found that kind of fascinating. Um, so if you go that to Glacier. a cool-looking bear. Yeah, if you go to Glacier, you might see a blue bear, which is kind of cool. Uh, the park also has lots of moose, wolves, um, Sitka, black-tailed deer, mountain goats, and uh, bald eagles. So before I wrap up the um, location, I'm going to go into some of the risks that you might encounter in this park because it is a very remote park, and there's only one area of the park that's kind of uh, built up. It's, I believe it's in that cove we mentioned earlier. So obviously hypothermia is a major risk if you're hiking in this park. Um, Especially with all that precipitation, if it's rainy a lot. Yeah, you, you could get have, your clothes wet. <clears throat> yeah, you could have long periods of rainy, overcast, cool weather, which is very normal for this part of Alaska. And summer daytime temperatures are usually in the range of forty-five to sixty-five degrees Fahrenheit, and nights stay cool to near freezing. So, it's recommended, and this is right from the Park Service, that you you know bring hat gloves uh, and rain gear and waterproof foot gear. So that's probably if you're just hiking, let alone camping for a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. So another. This is an interesting one. I've never heard of this before. It's called paralytic shellfish poisoning. So eating mussels and clams in Glacier Bay is not recommended as there's a neurotoxin that calls, that causes paralytic uh, shellfish poisoning, um, and they're in high concentrations in the area. This is a naturally occurring toxin that affects humans as well as other animals and can lead to sudden death. Ooh, I wonder if it like shuts, shuts down like central nervous system and stuff. Yeah, like, like paralyzes, paralyzes your... so you like can't breathe. Yeah, yeah. So don't eat any of the mussels or clams if you're hiking. All right, I don't like them, so that's perfect. <laughs> uh, obviously, bears are uh, a issue in this park. Glacier Bay is home to both black bears, brown slash grizzly bears, <laughs> uh, and, and that's where they're big. Yeah, and when you, you get up in cold climate, they get bigger. Yeah, to live better, and uh, they're scary up there. Yeah, you know, and you know, we always tell you kind of what to do when hiking in bear country, but you know, to lessen your chances of encountering a bear, you know, uh, you know, make noise while you're hiking. You always want to travel in groups. Avoid traveling at night. Uh, food, garbage, anything that has a scent to it must be stored properly, either in a you know, strung up in a tree or throw shellfish at them. Yeah, throw shellfish at them. Uh, Temporarily you know, paralyze them. I've, I've hiked with those bear-resistant bear kegs, and um, sometimes campgrounds will have metal containers that you can store your food in, so um, be careful with that. Uh, Giardias, yeah, they can still smell through it. It's yeah. supposed to just keep them from getting it, so they yeah. still get attracted to you. That's the irony of it. I think sometimes people think that it like blocks the scent. It's like, yeah. no, 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 no. They can smell it. It's just they'll be trying to get in for a long time. Your best be bet to. is to put it in a bear keg and hang that, like, I don't know, 50, 100 feet downwind from wherever you're sleeping. Yeah, between trees, not against a tree. Because from <clears throat> what I remember, you know, from what I've been told by rangers is you want to get the food higher than the bear's, like, smell zone. So even on a bear, even on his hind legs, think, like, those blue bears can get up to 11 feet. So you really got to be hanging that food higher than 11 oh, yeah. feet so that they can't smell it. Um, Giardia is a concern in this park. So people come to places like Alaska and see the crystal blue water and think it's really clean and uh, they drink it and then they're on the toilet for the next two weeks. Yeah. So even though water may look clean, you do not want to drink it without either boiling it or filtering it or chemically treating it. Whenever I hike, I usually, obviously we have fire, but I always bring a filter and chemical 
yeah, uh, treatment. There could for, be dead animals upstream, fecal matter from animals upstream, things yep. like that. That's that's what's going to get you. Uh, tides are a big concern in this park, especially a lot of the hiking happens on the beaches. So Glacier Bay does experience dramatic tide changes, up to twenty five feet in six hours. So that's wild. So yeah, I mean, I've in uh, Washington, we camped on the beach in Olympic National Park. So if you're camping on the beach in Glacier, you just got to be mindful that the tides can, you know, go up 25 feet. So you want to make sure you're not... Don't be against the water. Yeah, you're not w- waking up in the middle Certain of the night to, to the ocean slapping on you on your back. So um, obviously moose are an incredible problem in Alaska in general. Anyone who's been there, I remember seeing them walking down streets in Anchorage. I wouldn't say they're a problem. Yeah. They can be a problem can for a problem. you. Yes. Because that's their house. That's their house. Uh, <laughs> anyone who's been to Alaska knows that moose are more common than people in Alaska. And and they're mean. They can be mean for no reason. Huge. And they are huge. They're absolutely massive. If you've never seen a moose in person, you'll be more scared of them than bears. <laughs> Did you ever see that video of the moose walking on the freeway that's like 10 feet tall? <laughs> no. Oh. You keep um, talking. I'll look it up and see if I can find it for the video. So uh, other than uh, moose, there's a poisonous plant in the park called baneberry that you really got to be careful of. It's very toxic to humans. Uh, it's a member of the buttercup family and aptly named bane, which is a, a derision from the Anglo-Saxon word meaning murderous. Uh, all parts of the plant are toxic. Ingesting just one berry can cause numbness in the mouth and tongue. The poison in three berries is enough to kill a child, and six berries will Jeez. effectively shut down the respiratory system in an adult. It was put in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> you merely adopted it. It's so, the bane berry? Bane berry. <laughs> so, you know, that's just good advice. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Um, so that's just good advice whenever you're hiking out in the wilderness. If you are not sure, like if you're – you're thinking about eating something and you're not sure what it is, don't eat it um, because you could end up in Alaska eating something called a baneberry that could literally kill you with six berries. Um, so difficulty in general in this park, I'll kind of breeze through this pretty quickly so Joe can get to the character profile, but um, there really aren't any maintained trails in this park's wilderness. The backcountry hiking pretty much sticks to beaches, glacial riverbeds, Alpine meadows due to the rugged terrain and thick alder thickets. So you can do, you can hike anywhere in the park you want from what I read, but yeah, they're designated camping spots, but outside of that, it's pretty rugged. Yeah. And there's a lot of good hikes around uh, Bartlett Cove and that is the only developed area within Glacier. So it's Glacier Bay. So it's a very uh, remote rustic park. Um, we, we mentioned that the tides change really fast. Summer, during the summer, the days last 18 hours long here. So uh, if you're, you're in the summer and you're doing any alpine hiking, make sure to bring plenty of water. And one thing people forget when they're hiking in the mountains is sunscreen. Especially when it's cold. They don't think they need it. Yeah. You'll get so burned up if you don't put sunscreen on your face. <laughs> yeah. I've done it before. That was in uh, Africa when we got up to the top of Kili. Uh, I got sunburned like instantly. Yeah. And any exposed skin was just sunburned because you're like above the atmosphere. There's no atmospheric protection. You just like everything looked yellow, I remember. It was yeah. very, very different looking. Yeah. So uh, one final note that if you are backcountry hiking or camping um, or even boating in there, you do need a free permit between May 1st and September 30th. So just keep that in mind. Uh, so, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Mr. Kevin O'Keefe? Sure. Per, but first, I'm going to show this sweet video of this moose real quick. It's like <laughs> okay. one second long. Like, look at how big this thing is. 
So think, it's on a two-lane street. Look at that thing. They're massive. It's yeah. twice the size of an SUV. There's an SUV parked. Like, people are backing up. This thing is massive. Yeah. That is so wild. Jeez. Yep. It's their house. We just live near it. Yeah. And sometimes go into it. And if they don't want us there, we're not going to be there. All right. So we'll move on. Kevin O'Keefe. Uh, he's a male, age 36 at the time of his disappearance. Uh, now, his experience was that he was an outdoor enthusiast, so he was into the hiking and camping. Uh, he resided in Sacramento, California. Okay. And he frequently went out hiking and camping. Yeah. Uh, he told loved ones that he'd always wanted to go camping in Alaska. So by the summer of 1985, Kevin had spent a ton of time researching different locations in Alaska that he could potentially visit. So Kevin ended up choosing Glacier Bay National Park as his favorite. Uh, given given the primitive nature of the Alaskan wilderness and how remote it is, which is exactly what we're into. You know, yeah. if you're really into hiking, you start wanting to get away from touristy spots and getting into areas where you can truly disconnect. So I totally understand where he's coming from. Yeah. So Kevin was smart and, just, and granted, this is the eighties too. Yeah. So it's like so the not year now. I was born. Yeah. yeah. It's Good year. It, it's a long time ago. So yes. even less developed than now, and it's still rugged. Uh, so Kevin was pretty smart. He decided he needed to take a class on how to survive in Alaska. So he actually took a class in survival wow. in the Alaskan <clears throat> wilderness. Uh, so as far as prepared goes, he was already an outdoorsman, and he went above and beyond and took a specific class pointed at surviving in the areas he was going to. Which is more than we can say for probably 99% of the cases we follow. Uh, agreed. I, I'd say that's even above and beyond what you normally need to do. Like, yeah. if, if we ever go there, we're going to do a ton of reading and stuff, but we probably wouldn't take a class. We'd probably I look mean, up and say, oh, what's the gear list? What do you yeah. need? What what should we expect? We've we never take taken an words. actual wilderness survival. No. I mean, we've done trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. I've watched, like, YouTube videos of people, like, like, like you have, like different things, but not a specific pointed class. I, so. th- I mean, obviously... If you can take one of these classes, do it. I think also oh, if, yeah. if you have common sense and you do your research and prepare properly, you can safely backcountry hike and, you know, learn on the go a little. Well, and that's – I totally agree, and I think it's obviously a good idea, and that's why this case is so compelling. Yeah. Uh, because – Again, you know, every now and then we'll get people that maybe you could tell, like, oh, they weren't really that good at it. This yeah. is a guy who was good at it and was overly prepared. Yeah. So we'll get in the timeline. On September 20th, 1985, Kevin flew from Sacramento to Juneau, Alaska, where he commuted his way up to Glacier Bay National Park. Uh, when he arrived at the park's headquarters, he gave his itinerary to the rangers. He said that he'd be over near the Wolf Point area against the water and said that he was going to be there for about three weeks. Kevin planned on leaving on October 10th. So, actually, I'll pull this up on the map. This is actually okay. Wolf Point right here. Yeah. That's why I kept zooming into that. So, did he? you said he got dropped off by a boat can, at that spot? Yeah, I think I go into it right here. Okay. I, yeah, like, you can't hike there or drive there. Like, you have to be like either flown in yeah. or, anything like, or something like that. So, on September 22nd, so this is two days later, Kevin took a float plane to the Muir Inlet north of Wolf Point to establish base camp. For the next couple of weeks, no one in Kevin's family or any of the park rangers heard from Kevin. Uh, but the trip was supposed to be secluded, yeah. so that was normal. He gave him his itinerary, said, I'll be around here. Yep. Uh, and from all intents and purposes, that's kind of where he stayed. So he landed up kind of up in this region yeah. uh, and set up base camp. Just They said it was north of Wolf Point, but this is there's not a lot here. So it was kind of in this area. Or like maybe right on the water even. or was Yeah, he- possibly. 
It didn't say exactly where. Yeah. And there's since these are so rugged, like you can't see trails or like, hey, here's the trailhead. There are no it, trails. Yeah, really. it just yeah. is. <clears throat> it is wilderness. Yeah, cool. So now we fast forward to October eighth. This is two days before Kevin said he was planning to leave. A couple of park rangers were in a boat patrolling some of the waterways around Wolf Point, which is the area he was camping. So the rangers decided to check in on Kevin and see how he was doing. Uh, when they came upon where Kevin's camp was, they immediately knew something was wrong. His tent was not in the area it was supposed to be. In national parks, they usually have that designated square of like soil or gravel. It's yep. like usually like a box, and they yeah. say, put your stuff here. And they do that so you don't trample any of the park areas and you keep it all, you know, this is going to be the one area where nothing's going to grow. It's for yeah. people. So his tent was actually down a few meters on the beach that butted up against his campsite. Uh, some of his gear was placed outside the tent. It wasn't strewn about, and I think that's important to note. Yeah. Um, and we do have the reports from the Rangers, so I'm going to read from these reports, and I'll throw them up on the screen too. You won't be able to see them real well here, but uh, you'll kind of get an idea of, of what was going on. Uh, and we'll share these on the website as well. So on 10-8-85, and this is the results of their investigation, at approximately 1,600 hours, that's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, while on patrol, David Neenith and myself visited a campsite believed to be that of Kevin O'Keefe of Sacramento, California. The campsite was located in an interdidal alcove on Wolf Point in the east arm of Glacier Bay. And that's where I zoomed in on. I don't know exactly what that means, so I zoomed in on that area, but it gives you an idea of where they're talking about on Wolf Point. (laughs) The initial observation showed a high tide debris line at the base of the tent. We called out but received no answer. At that time, we zipped open the tent and observed a sleeping bag laid out on a blue foam pad and a green Kelty backpack lying beside the sleeping bag. So it looks like he had just been in there. Like, all his stuff was unpacked. Um, yep. No sign that, like, a bear attacked his tent or something and, th- you know, threw everything around. Yeah, I'd say the one thing is they saw a, a high-tide debris line at the base of the tent. It That's didn't sound good. like it got up to the tent. So take yeah. that with a grain of salt. It says, we walked around uh, the camp ranging as far as 100 yards, about 100 feet to the north, of the tent, we found two stuffed sacks at the base of a clump of alder. Uh, a palpation of the sacks led us to believe that this was his food cache. Because O'Keefe was not due to be picked up until the 10th, we left his camp untouched, thinking he was out on a day hike. An additional note uh, was that the tent had a broken pole that held up the rainfly. So one of the top poles in the top looked like it was potentially broken. Yeah. So now this is 10-9 a day later. Okay. 10-9-85, so October 9th, 1985. I returned and motored by in a drumlin at 11.30 hours. That's in the morning, so I think that's the boat he was in. The area appeared to have been untouched overnight. I then picked up David Nemeth and Jane Letart from uh, Nunata Cove, and we motored to Wolf Point. We went ashore to investigate. The tent had not been repaired, and the gear didn't appear to have been disrupted. We then anchored offshore until dark, then returned to Goose Cove for the night. At 18.30 hours, that's 6.30 at night, Bartlett Cove was notified that search should be initiated as it appeared that O'Keefe was missing. An overflight was requested for the next morning and notification was made to acting uh, SUPT dot. I don't know, is that superintendent? I'm guessing that's superintendent Gary. Is Is that a title with a park service, like a superintendent of the park? Yeah. Okay, I just don't know. 
Uh, Gary Vequist with a request that the Alaska State Troopers be notified and alerted that the Sea Dogs be put on standby. Standby. <clears throat> Pending the result of the overflight. Later this evening, we were notified that an overflight was scheduled for 1,000 hours the next morning. So now we are on October 10th, 1985. This is the day he was supposed to be leaving. So if he was gone doing something else, this is the day in his itinerary that he was supposed to come back. Yeah. On 10-10-85, at 0800 hours, we motored from Goose Cove to the western shore of the Muir Inlet and checked the shoreline to Wolf Point. We arrived at Wolf Point at 0900 hours and went ashore to take an inventory of the equipment. See attached sheet for the complete inventory of the tent, pack, and food caches. Uh, we do have that too, so we'll be okay. posting that online. At 1000 hours, a Cessna 206 on floats from Glacier Bay Airways arrived with the Art Hay- with Art Hayes as a pilot and Ranger Lee Seelig as observer. I then got aboard and we made a two-hour overflight. See attached map of the sea area. I don't have that and I couldn't find it. Yeah. So that was not that did not come in the FOIA request. Uh, Mimith and Latart went ashore to do a hasty search of the area. The flight and hasty search turned up nothing. Sea League then disembarked the plane and was instructed to await the sea dogs before continuing the search so as not to further contaminate the area with human scent. So before you go further, my initial... First of all, it seems like... <clears throat> when it, so he went, he went out on September 20th. Mm-hmm. Or... He flew there. At yeah. September, so yeah, the twenty second like, is when 22nd. he actually went out to establish it's, his base camp. It's now the tenth, and um, it still doesn't even sound like a full fledged search is underway. It's a couple no. rangers and a plane kind of flying around, not to take anything away from that, but um, and they have no idea when essentially the first missing would have been. I mean, it could have been yeah. four or five days could have before been on the thirtieth of September. It could have been two days after yeah. Yeah, he, he got there. They have no idea. So I obviously Joe researched this, so I don't know the case, but I can already say in my head that uh this is not a good sign that the search is moving this slow. And it's no it's not anything to do with the park of the Rangers. A, this is a very remote park. Yeah, um, there's not like a bunch of trails they can hike up to to go to a spot, mm-hmm. um, and even uh, you know the equipment available. It's such a remote park. I mean, well, and there and there was nothing occurring that seemed off itinerary. Even when they yeah. first saw the stuff, uh, and that's why I said it was important. It wasn't strewn about like they they explained it as his stuff was kind of set out around the tent. Yeah, so they didn't think anything of it. Like, okay, maybe he's just gone. We'll check back in tomorrow, and that's kind of yeah. like, all right, like maybe he's still not back. Hike. Yeah, nothing's been touched. This doesn't yeah. look. Now let's start raising some red flags. Okay. So at 1430 hours, that's 230 in the afternoon. I'm so glad you know military time so quickly. <laughs> it's just minus two. I know. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two scent slash tracking dogs and handlers from the Sea Dogs in Juneau arrived via a chartered Livingston ERA helicopter with Charlie McLeod as pilot. This is a really detailed report, this by the way. This is a very detailed report. Oh, yeah. You know they have nothing better to do. <laughs> so Sea League, a company with the Sea Dogs, uh, Riley, Ritchie, uh, looks Axe with Taco, and Dave Haas, Juno Art, Alaska with Rinny. So they even named where they came, where the dogs came from. That's funny. And searched the area until dark. At 1830 hours, that's 730, oh, 630, excuse me, 
During the ground search, Nemeth and Latart were on board the helicopter doing an aerial overflight of the area. See attached map. Again, I don't have that map. The Drumlin anchored up at Wolf Point overnight at 1330 hours. That's 130. And 1630 hours, I made a radio announcement requesting information from any vessel who may have seen O'Keefe at any time during the period he was camped at Wolf Point. There was no response at this time. Now, um, just to cut into people listening might be like, why are you just reading this report? Um, this is like the most accurate description of kind of a search that we've seen in a while from the National Park Service. And usually we're going off of, you know, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand information from like news reports and um you know, reporting on this, uh, it would it wouldn't do the information justice if we took this report and then you know wrote it out in our own words just to describe it back to you. You really got to hear what these people are writing because it's so incredibly detailed. Um, we're not used to these kind of reports. Yeah, this uh, is. I mean, cases. this is written when they were doing this, yeah. or directly after. So you're getting. I'm guessing they're taking notes while they're searching. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're probably taking notes. This is the words of the people who did the actual search yeah. and how they saw the scene. So this is, you know, they didn't have video back then, or they did, but they're not going to have you know handheld video cameras doing this stuff. So this is the best visual you could represent of what was happening real time while this guy was missing. Yeah. Uh, search and rescue dogs or sea dogs were flown in with their handlers in Juneau to help with the search. We did talk about this. This is uh, the results of the investigation. So Richard O'Ginn, the Alaska NPS regional office, and Sergeant Robert Lone, which is a state trooper, were kept updated on the search progress on a daily basis. Information from people he had contacted at Bartlett Cove and his relatives was used to determine his plans and any type of equipment. His sister and his mother were first notified by telephone on uh, October 10th of 85 at 13, uh, 13, 16 hours. That's 1, 16 in the afternoon uh, to the frequent uh, frequent contacts in subsequent days. Miss O'Keefe had made several other camping trips in recent, or Mr. O'Keefe had made several other camping trips in recent years, but never for such a long period of time. He planned to take a short day hike from his tent site. His mother was concerned because of her son's bad knee. Uh, during the search on uh, 10 1285, a pair of hiking boots and hat believed belonging to O'Keefe was found about a half a mile northeast of the tent site. So he had a bad knee. Yeah. Uh, they found hiking boots and a hat, which they're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So it's probably his. Yeah. There's, there's not prob- like tons of people were out there. There's a good chance in this search and rescue operation that whatever they find is related to O'Keefe just because, A, the park is so massive, it's so hard to get to these spots. It is 1985. There was a less tourism to the parks at that time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's, it was just difficult to get there at that time. Yeah. So, uh, this goes back. That that made a statement about two days from there, but we're now on the 11th of October. Okay. Uh, they expanded the search and included another dog handler and his search dog. Also, the helicopters flew an aerial search pattern of the search areas again. The high-probability search area was searched thoroughly uh, and a request for anyone with information was placed over VHF radio. So the land search continued on October 13th of 85 with three remaining employees, uh, Lee Seelig and Dave, Dave Nemeth and Jerry Case, until late morning when they began a search along the shoreline from the MV Drumlin, that's the boat they were on, 
They return to Bartlett Cove at approximately 2,100 hours. So that's 8 p.m. Gary Vequist, Jerry Case, and Randolph Hensley flew the site, the search site on 1014 of 85 to conduct a shoreline and aerial search of the, of the area. After the flight, the search was officially discontinued. Of note, here we go. The Sea Dogs alerted to item 76 through 92 on the attached inventory. Jane Letarte found item 93. So that's where they found some of the stuff that they're looking at. Yeah. Um, I'll throw it up on here, but again, this is going to be posted. It's a very detailed list of all the stuff they have. I mean, it's like yeah, water a lot bottle. Of stuff with yeah, it. Yeah. Number, number seven, water bottle, one liter. Number eight, water bottle, half liter. Number nine, stuff sack, blue. Number 10, stuff sack, blue, smaller. Uh, 11 cord nylon. So they were incredibly thorough. So they had mentioned that the dog found um, item 76 through 92 in, in a different spot. So that would include uh, a black plastic bag, mothballs, uh, another bag with plastic, uh, a ticket for Alaska Airlines, some food, uh, the crackers, salami, um, the following items were found several hundred yards from the tent. That was the boots, their Vibram sold wilderness brand size 10 and a half, yeah. hat, knit brown wool. And then a couple hundred yards from the tent site, they found the gloves that were uh, green knit gloves that were lined. So, so we he had, had a lot of stuff with him. He had a ton of stuff, but he was yeah. there for three weeks. Yeah. So it was a lot of food. And that was another thing too is it seemed like there was a lot of food left. Yeah, so that so makes me think that keep keep it in your back pocket. Okay, okay. Keep it your, I'll keep see, you're, you've been doing most of the stories recently. I know. Yeah. See how difficult it is to hold yeah. your theories in. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So here's a little. So we have Kevin. Well, we have no sign of Kevin, but they did discover his campsite and virtually all of the equipment you'd expect to be at a campsite in Alaska of someone who's staying there for a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, well, it was all there, and his backpack was fully packed as if he was going to go on a hike. It had food, it had extra clothes, it had water. It was all packed right up against a tree, all of his sleeping equipment and his cooking equipment, and oddly, there were lots of food that Kevin still had left in the campsite. That was out in the open, and no animals had touched it. Interesting. As they began searching the outer areas of the campsite, dogs were able to locate Kevin's boots and gloves, as we said. Uh, There was early speculation that Kevin was attacked by bears or some other predator, but the park ranger who knew the area extremely well and had seen other bear attacks yeah. said, I don't think this is a bear attack because there's no sign of a death struggle anywhere at the camp. And if you get attacked by a big predator, you're going to fight for your life to save yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to grab onto things. You're going to flail around. And this is his words. It's fairly obvious. And there's none of that. There's also no blood or remains or any indication that someone was hurt in this space. And if an animal had come into this camp and attacked Kevin and eaten Kevin, they certainly would have taken that food that was out and about in the campsite. As the investigation continued, rangers noted how strange it was that no animals were coming into the campsite at all. There's just no activity, nothing in the area. It's like the animals were staying away from Kevin's site. <laughs> so that's one of the things they said. Cue the X-Files. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so investigators went to speak with Kevin's family and asked if they had any signs that he, were, that he was looking to end his own life or any relevant information they could give him. The response was that Kevin was really happy, well-adjusted, including being excited about the trip. Plus, why would he prep so hard? Yeah. Like, if he was going there to end his life, why do you care about survival? Yeah. Which is a very good point. Yeah. So that's it. That's yeah. it. That's that's where we're left. The tent's not in the space it's supposed to. Uh, it looked like it butted up against where the tide line went. Yeah. So what it sounded like, his stuff was placed out really well, right up to where the tide came up to, mm-hmm. but it wasn't kind of disheveled. Yeah. Um, 
tons of food left over, a bag packed like it was ready for a day hike, uh, boots and knit gloves a couple hundred yards away from the tent uh, in two different spots. Yeah. And that is all the information we have. Very interesting. So, yeah, to recap, he was out there for a few weeks. These rangers were on a boat kind of just checking in on the area, mm-hmm. came across his campsite. Campsite looks virtually undisturbed. Obviously, his tent was in the wrong spot. It wasn't in the designated camping spot, Up, right up on the water, basically, the tide line. And, but his gear was set out in an orderly fashion, not strewn about like a bear had come and attacked his campsite. And, you know, shredded anything. Yeah. And there was even food, which, uh, you know, in bear country and really wild Alaska, you would think, like, salami sitting out, like, would be, like, would be a bear magnet. Yeah, or even just disturbed by, yeah, the small animals would have, like, bored holes through the stuff sacks. I mean, even when we were hiking in uh, Zion, like, the little mice and rats, whatever the heck those things were, got into my food that was... Uh, tied up in a tree. Remember that? Oh yeah, the squirrels it, climbed down my rope and, and that into was my. And that was one night. That was one night. And uh, remember, we woke up to the, all the big cat footprints circling the tent. Oh yeah, and we never heard them. That was terrifying. Terrifying. To me. There were tons of footprints. So, like we were, we pulled into that camp late at night, set up, went to sleep, woke up. Mike's food had already been eaten, and our campsite was full of basically mountain lion prints everywhere. Yeah. And that was. One night. Yeah, in the same In the desert. When we were uh, hiking in Canada, the Canadian Rockies, one of the mornings we got up, about 20 feet from our tent were uh, several sets of grizzly prints. Um, Yeah, there you go. I don't know that they were grizzly bears, but massive bears were literally walking 20 feet from our tent while we were sleeping, which is kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, and the, but the prints were fresh. And that wasn't three weeks of no. the same area. Um, so I zoomed into the map here, and you can kind of see. I'll make yeah. sure I'm streaming it. Um, this is Wolf Point. Okay. And what I noticed in – I noticed this when I was looking around. You can see these are obviously man-made structures, it yeah. looks like, unless they're like snow. Or garbage. Well, it looks like potentially these are tents. So I'm imagining – he maybe had his tent in an area like this because yeah. this is up here is very kind of mountainous and heavy in trees. This is kind of open, yeah, and you're close to the water. So I, again, this isn't confirmed. I'm imagining yes. he was kind of in this area. So looking around here, it's pretty open in this yeah. spot. So if he's there, up here is more wooded and mountainous. So I can't imagine it's good camping. Yeah, and if his tent butted up against a high tide line, these are too high. Yeah. So I really assumed it was kind of like this beach area. Yeah. Um, and there's not much area to go. No. So that's this is kind of my visual of it. Like, okay, if he's somewhere in here, where are they going to look? They're going to go up and down the shoreline. They're going to go in a little bit. But yeah. they found all this stuff kind of around there. Yeah, this is a peculiar So peculiar what do you think? Case. Well, what do you think? A couple ideas are going through my head. So one of the things that's tripping me up is – the fact that his boots were found, what they say, half mile away from his rest of his gear. It was. They said they said a couple different things. When you look at the gear list, I'll pull this thing up again. Yeah, they have two different notes. The following were found several hundred yards from the tent site. Yeah, and that's his boots. And then right below it, the following was found a couple hundred yards from the tent site. That was his gloves. 
Okay. So that you could leave open to interpretation. I'd say several means at least 300 yards. I do know that we were warned about this in Glacier, that the deer there will actually, like, if you, have, like, leave your sweaty boots outside overnight, the deer will actually come into your camp and pick your boots up and take them. Oh, because of the salt? Because they the like salt. licking it? Yeah, so they, they recommend that you don't leave your... Yeah, that marmots. Stinky. Uh, they said marmots do that too. So, you know, maybe... Because uh, the first thing I'm thinking of is he somehow got like sucked into the water and drowned. And okay. his body was washed out to sea. Okay. Um, just because, obviously, like I mentioned earlier on, the tides can change dramatically in this part of the uh, Alaska. And... Maybe it was a you know warmer day out or something, and he went for a swim. Maybe he got done hiking all day, and uh, he decided to go for a quick little swim to cool down, or, you know, or who knows what he was doing. But he got into the water and somehow couldn't get back to shore and ended up drowning, okay. which is why they would have never found his body, and there was no sign of an animal attack. So I'll reread this. Okay. Just because. Because yeah. I thought that too. The observation showed a high tide debris line at the base of the tent. Yeah. We called out but received no answer. At that time, we zipped open the tent and observed a sleeping bag laid out on a blue foam pad and green felty, felty backpack laying beside sleeping bags. So all of his sleeping stuff was laid out perfectly in the tent, and yeah. the tent had the debris line go up to it but not over it. Yeah. So Okay. I mean, so I think one theory is he drowned somehow, which is why they didn't find the body. Um, the Finding the boots and everything farther away, it like if he had gone for a swim, you would have left your boots near the shore. Like you leave your clothes right by where you're going into the water. You yeah, wouldn't, like, and take I don't think he's swimming yards. in that water. No, it's probably freezing. Yeah, um, it's probably freezing all year round. Yeah. So, I mean, I think with this much water around and the issue with tides, I think drowning is a possibility. Um, I would say something like he got caught in some bad weather, got wet, and suffered from hypothermia and started taking stuff off as he was walking away from camp. But that doesn't that theory doesn't line up with me because there was food left out and things like salami and it was untouched yet. So that leads me to think that he disappeared pretty recently before the Rangers came to his campsite. So what could it be? I mean, there's a very high probability of um, he could have been attacked by an animal, but like the rangers said, they found no evidence of a struggle. Um, you know, a bear attack is a, a messy ordeal, and there would be evidence of that, and uh, they didn't find any of that. And it's a very strange note that they made the mention of no wildlife in the area. You know, this reminds me of the um, that old guy in New York, that the hunter that went missing. Um, remember that case? From a few years ago, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. But Vaguely, I'm remembering it. When the FBI showed up, yep, they showed up. Yeah, they showed up. No, I don't know where. Wouldn't answer any questions. Yeah, and it, it, people they made uh, people on the search made the made the point to mention that it seemed very odd in the forest that day. There was, it was like all the animals had disappeared in the area he went missing. Yes, yeah, you remember okay, that? Now? Yep, I, yep, that that triggered it for me. Tom Messick. Yep, that's the guy. Okay. That's the case. If you, you have a listened. great memory, good for you. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had that memory. Uh, well, and if you're listening to this you, and you haven't heard that episode, go back. It's what episode our, number is it? I, that I don't Take know. Take a guess. Eight. Okay. Um, Twelve. I don't know. It was one of our earlier episodes. Yep. 
Um, but in that case, they the people in the search made a point to mention that it it was very odd that day that it was like the forest was scrubbed of animals. This kind of reminds me of the same thing where, um, you know, Alaska is teeming with wildlife. Dude, it's episode twelve. Episode twelve. I you got said it. it. It was your time. second guess. You yeah. said eight. Nah, I think it's twelve. <laughs> Look at you. Holy cow. Um, episode so, twelve. Tom Messick. Check it out. Yeah. So I find it very strange that they made it was big enough of a issue that they made a mention that it was like the animals are staying well, away from that's this the campsite. Thing. You have people that know the area experts that they notice something different that weirded them out. Yeah. That they made mention of it. I mean, I in think Glacier, we had deer trailing us off the trail even. I mean, there's yeah. so much wildlife in these parks. That is very odd to well, me. Well, that's, so. that's the thing. It's it's not like a visitor saying it. It's a guy who works is like, yeah, there's no animals here. How's the food yeah. staying out? And they're like, how's it staying out overnight? And to me, it's like, it could have been four or five days maybe. So the only thing I can think of that makes sense to me other than, you know, somehow he drowned is um, he had a second pair of boots with him and he went on a hike, a day hike, and something happened. As we know, this is very rugged terrain. Once you get away from the coastline, and it's very thick. Like if you go missing in some of this vegetation, you're never going to be found. I mean, it's that thick. And I'm wondering if maybe he went, maybe he like got some stuff out to eat and he's like, I'm going to go do a, I mean, that doesn't sound like something he would do if he's trained in wilderness survival because everyone knows not to just leave food laying about mm-hmm. in your campsite. Uh, but maybe he went on a day hike and uh, fell and there's no trails around here. So he'd have to be kind of, you know, stopping through the, the brush yeah, so here's um I'm looking at the gear list, just kinda like what you said of like yeah. how much stuff he had. Um so it says the following items were found in his Kelty frame backpack. Uh mothballs, tent stakes, cords, uh double A batteries, gaiters, shoestrings, cord, flashlight, uh fragment of Kodak film box, uh stuff sack, handy wipes, tent stakes, cord, bits of cellophane and paper. So he had a fully packed pack. Yeah. Rain gear, jacket, pants, a hat, a camouflage hat, shoes. So there were shoes in there too. Yeah. Trowel, plastic bags with clothes inside. Uh, so he had this thing all packed up. So it sounds uh, like an empty film disc. Yeah. And it's, I'm not seeing camera on here. I'd be interested to see if like the camera it, was gone. It sounds like he had all his gear in his campsite. So that theory of him going out for a day hike, you'd... Unless he had even more stuff with him, um, well, I mean, you come in by plane and boat. You're not. You don't have to carry all of it. Yeah, you're unloading it, building your base camp up, and then you so can, you can do bring the, more stuff. I exactly. Mean, this is. I mean, this is way more stuff than any one person could carry if they. Have and obviously, hiking. these rangers meticulously detailed out the list. In reality, it's probably if you looked at the volume of this stuff. I mean. It, oh yeah, cellophane paper, and I mean it's not going to take up a lot of space. Yeah, you could have of most of this stuff in one pocket, probably. Yeah, like yeah, moleskin, moleskin, earplugs, film, matches, sunglasses, gloves. That could all be in one tiny pocket. I mean, if you took apart my first aid kit, you would have forty items on this list. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it, it maybe it's not that much stuff, but nothing makes sense with this one. Did so? I guess in my head, theories I've got that seem the most plausible is drowning. I think that close to water, something happened where he fell in, mm-hmm. and it's probably so cold, maybe it shocked his system. I mean, he was only 36 years old, so 
we know he had a bad knee, but we don't know anything else about his health. So, I mean, anything's possible. Maybe he, the shock of the cold water falling in, he had a heart attack or something. And, okay. Um, I You're think, full on drowning. You think there's some sort of incident where... I would say foul play, but I mean, the chances of running into somebody, let alone somebody that's going to kill you in this yeah. part of the park, it's not like people are going to be in this part of the park doing like illegal activities. It's yeah, too remote. You need to take a float plane to get there. Yeah, that's not like the most convenient if you're growing drugs. And so I foul play, I'm kind of ruling out unless there's some crazy person living out there, which I yeah. guess could... I think animal attack is a possibility, but there's no evidence of it. Um, it's very odd to me that the food was left untouched. Um, I don't know. Suicide definitely. So hear me out on this theory. Okay. I, I pro- I'll try not to interrupt. You, I, I've, <laughs> I, for a couple years, I watched that show on the History Channel alone. You ever remember that show? Alone? Alone. I haven't had cable in like 15 years. So, so no. <laughs> the premise of the show is uh, they have like 10 people and they they drop all of them off. In oh, very, do they hold their own cameras? Yeah. Okay, I do And the person that, yeah. who survives the longest before tapping out wins like 100 grand or something. Okay. And watching that show, it's amazing how quickly some people lose it when they're by themselves, like alone and secluded. Like some people on the show were able to go months on their own. Like, okay. Just fine. Their mental health is fine. And other people, after like five or six days, are kind of starting to go crazy. So did uh, O'Keefe, you know, he's out here for two weeks, completely by himself, secluded. It doesn't appear like anything happened to him or his campsite based on, you know, the orderly fashion of the, the gear. Yeah. Did he have like a mental breakdown because of the seclusion and go crazy and just wander off into the woods or go and kill himself or do something irrational? Um because of the fact that he was out here by himself, you know, and some people just, I mean, that's why like NASA does those studies, long-term uh, space flight studies where they go to like the desert in Arizona and they lock people in like a mock space station for a year. Cause yeah. they want to study how, like just how they react, how people react confined in a closed space, like together for a year. Some people just, not everyone's cut out for long-term space flight because some people just go crazy. Yeah. And, like, would murder everyone else. <laughs> like, okay. Saying it, watching no, it alone. I, I, yeah. So I wonder if the seclusion got to him, and even in the short period of time, two weeks, he went crazy and just, just like, ripped his boots off and just, like, walked into the woods. And okay. no one found him again. I, um... What do you think happened? I don't know. And this yeah. is this is why this really been bugging me because like I researched the case, so I like I watched some YouTube videos about it, about people that covered it. I read through the reports and stuff, yeah. and nothing stood out to me. Yeah, as a possibility outside of kind of what you said. I'm like, maybe he went on a day hike and got injured, but all the stuff that you would bring, like his, his camera, like shoot, like all the bag stuff is not there. Yeah, and then he had like under an alder bush, like a couple things, and then like the stuff that was strewn about. And I'm like, okay, even like that stuff aside, pretend that stuff that doesn't exist. Yeah. Everything's at the site. And from what it appears, this is my assumption. I have nothing to back this up other than what it seems like. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of food left over. Yeah. So that told me, I'm like, did he start setting up camp and get whatever happened to him early on in the trip? Yeah. Or 
was his tent down there and everything laid out because he was packing up. You know, yeah. when you pack up, you just want to you want to lay everything out lay it, so you can pack it properly. Exactly. Yeah. So like it, I and I was like, okay, was that him laying everything out or was that him? laying it out prior to setting up base camp. You can go either way. Yeah. It's a big window of time with no contact. Yep. So, and they have no, no natural areas to search. Like in most parks, if you're at a campsite, there's going to be a trail next to the campsite that maybe does a loop or it's an in and out or something. That's a good starting point. If a tent's here and they're missing, well, we're going to start searching the trail. Yeah. And fan out from there. Yeah, and anytime you're in like something like uh, Bureau of Land Management man, land where they're just it's just open, on t- it's just open. You yeah. can kind of go where you want. That's where it's it's hard to determine. I never thought of the drowning thing. I don't think he was sleeping and caught up in it, but maybe he went to like take a bath or something. That's and, what I'm. And maybe I mean, like was in too long and got maybe he ate some shellfish. Like, like seriously, like what? Yeah. Or those uh, berries, the Bane berry. Exactly. Like, yeah. is there something he just made a simple mistake? And in Alaska, you can't make mistakes, especially by yourself. Like, or if he went hiking with just shoes on, maybe he went to go, wasn't going to be a day hike. Maybe he went a couple hundred yards away. And, and the thing about cold water, like I'm assuming, I don't know. I'm assuming this water is really cold. And I don't know if anyone's ever like gone swimming. I'll, in like I'll start looking it up while you're talking. Incredibly cold, like glacier water, and your body almost like it's. There's a shock when you get in, but then your body. Oh, yeah, I've almost done the, kind of the goes, January first dives in Lake Michigan. Yeah, you, I can only be in there for a few seconds. Or, but your your body almost kind of starts to go numb from the cold. Oh yeah. And if he went into the water, like Joe said, to um, maybe bathe, or maybe he got close to the shore and slipped and fell in, and. I mean, it wouldn't take long for you to get, you know, hypothermic yep. in that kind of water. Uh, Joe, right now, for those uh, listening, is trying to look up what the water temperature is in Glacier Yeah, today Bay. it was 40 degrees. That's that's very cold. Very cold. Um, yeah, I think, I think drowning is a very... I don't know how the circumstance could come about, other than, like you said, maybe he... He's like, I'm going to take a quick, quick dip. Or maybe it was the end of the trip, and he's like, ah, one, I'm going to go take a quick, like, like a polar bear plunge into the water real quick by myself to, like, you know, the trip's done. It's to celebrate being out of there and, like, the quick, brisk, brisk nature of the cold water. But he underestimated how quickly you can become hypothermic in it. And uh, you, like, even in that kind of cold water, like, you even trying to tread water, you, like, your legs kind of start to stop working even. Yeah. I mean, it looks like the, on average, the hottest it gets is 57 degrees, and that is in July, 14 so degrees Celsius. He is was like there in the what, peak. September, what's the range? October, September, peaks 13 Celsius to 11 Celsius. So it's cold. It was five, five degrees Celsius today, which was yeah. what we say that was 40 degrees. Yeah. So it's like upper 40s. On average, can when he was there, can you Google how quickly you can become hypothermic in cold water? I, out of curiosity, um, yeah. I think, I think the two theories I'm going to hang my head on while you're you're googling this is um, all right. At a water temperature of 32.5 degrees, death may occur in under 15 to 45 minutes. There you go. At a water temperature of 32 <laughs> to 40 degrees, death may occur in 30 to 90 minutes. At a water, all right. So let's do forty to fifty, yeah. An hour and three, one to three hours. Now that is one to three hours in the water, and 
that's one to three hours in the water, yeah. assuming that you can come out and warm up. When you're in a tent, like you don't have a lot of time to warm up when you're yeah. coming out. Yeah, so um, I, I do think that potentially water played a role in his... Uh... <laughs> they won't be able to pick up on this one. Um, I definitely think that water could have played a role in his demise. Um, I'm starting to agree with you. I never even thought about that. I think the other possibility is he did, uh, due to the seclusion and isolation of being this far away from uh, civilization, that he went crazy and ran off into the woods. And, uh, you know, I could totally see that, especially after watching that show alone. I mean, some of these people did not make it long. And they just started getting goofy in the head, and uh, maybe that led him eating. You know, he ate some shellfish, or um, so. I think those are the two, my two theories. I'm just because nothing makes sense with this one. That's I. I would lean more towards something in the water. Like he went to bathe in the water and was in too long. Yeah, couldn't get out. He had a medical emergency even, from the well, shock of the cold. And even then, if even if he got out, what would you do? You'd go to your tent to warm up. Yeah. So then he would die in there. And they or maybe he him. went into the water and dropped something that he had brought with and then went, because that in the boundary waters, I dropped my GoPro in the water and had to go swimming for it, and it uh, was the, the, freezing. Yeah, and they said tides <laughs> come quick. Yeah. Maybe he got in, high tide came in, like he froze up, and then swept out with the tide. Yeah. I think... I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. I just think being that close to water, and in all of the search and rescue documents, they made no mention of like actually searching the the underwater area. Not that, I mean, if there's tides that are they, that yeah, strong, it would they, just wisp you out the sea anyways. Exactly. Which might be why his body never was found. But um, I think a close second for me is the going crazy due to the isolation. I don't think that one at all. No? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm with you on the water. Yeah. I think, I think he eats something in water. It makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean, with that much water and his tent literally was up to the tide line, I mean, that would make the most sense to me, but otherwise aliens, otherwise aliens <laughs> could always be aliens. It could all, it could be aliens. You never know. So, all I, right. Well, th- log on and tell us what you think. This is a, this is a pretty tough one for us. It's a crazy yeah. one. So let us know what you think online. Uh, thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate you all for tuning in, listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, uh, subscribe on the YouTube channel. You can also join the YouTube for a paid subscription. That's the same thing as our Patreon. So our special shows that go on Patreon will also be available on the YouTube subscription. Uh, if you'd like to sh- support the show monetarily uh, through getting some cool swag, you can visit our Facebook store. And we didn't show these again, but we got cool coasters. We have magnets. We have playing cards. We have <laughs> hats. We have mugs. We got lots I mean, of stuff. You can be all locations unknown everywhere and then go hiking. And if you get lost, they'll know that you at least knew what you were doing. Yeah. Because you listened to the show. Up until you went Up lost. Up until you went lost. <laughs> um, or you can always, for a dollar a month at minimum, join us on Patreon or the YouTube subscription, as we said. And lastly, remember when you're enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, taking a walk. Oh, that started it way too loud. Taking a walk in the woods. <laughs> Always remember to leave no trace. Thank you, and we will see you all next time.